Good morning, beloved. It's, uh, it's good to be back uh, uh, together with you this morning uh, in the Lord's house and worshiping um, together. We had a, just a, a real blessed time uh, traveling abroad, and uh, you'll probably uh, get tired of all my, I have so many analogies and things on the trip, and you'll be like, okay, enough of that already. But um, I just want to thank you for your prayers and, and, uh, and traveling mercies that you prayed for, and, and it really was a refreshing and a fantastic uh, time and uh, a lot of things to share, but thank you for that, for that time off. And we do come back refreshed, and, and uh, I thought, I was telling the Sunday school class, I thought I'd lost weight because of all of that walking but I don't think so. I, I, I think all that Italian food and, and the Greek food, it, it really did a number on me. But anyway, uh, glad to be back. I, I want to invite you to take uh, your Bibles and, and turn to John chapter uh, 14. Uh, we're going to be picking up uh, where we uh, left off uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, but before we read uh, from God's Word, let's ask the Lord to bless uh, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to be able to gather in your house together as your saints, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb as we've been singing about. Uh, he purchased our redemption by his blood on no account of our good works or because we were deserving, but because of your great love for us, and that is really what we have been studying in this gospel of yours, the gospel of John. Uh, you have given us this word, uh, as John says at the end, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. And so, Lord, we thank you for the testimony of your word as we've been learning from John, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, and we ask, Lord, that now as we continue to open your word and to look into it, uh, that you would grace us and bless us with the presence of your spirit, Father, uh, that the spirit would equip us and strengthen us and correct us where we need to be corrected, uh, that he would empower us to move out of this place as we've already prayed, uh, to be faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ to a lost and a dying world, that we would give to them the hope of the gospel that we would give to them the light of the world, that they may not be trapped in darkness. Help us, O oh God, not to take that good gift for granted, uh, but to be faithful ambassadors. And so we come before you with great anticipation, Father, and hunger for your word to know you more deeply, to know the Lord Jesus more deeply, and to know the Holy Spirit more deeply. Uh, we know that you have promised your word for that end, and we ask, Lord, now that you would bless it, that you would be with the words that I speak, O oh God, that you would guard me and my lips from error, and that you would guard your people from error. Uh, may you, O oh God, direct us in our worship and in our study this morning. We ask for your grace now, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's pick up in... Actually, John chapter 13, I'm going to read from verse 36 all the way through verse 21. So it's going to be a long, a long reading of God's word this morning, but, but beneficial in, in, in some ways 
you know, going through the Gospel of John, we've been looking over and over again at Jesus uh, proclaiming himself and demonstrating himself to be the very Son of God and the Messiah by all of his miracles and all of his works and his teaching. And so we have gone through John um, really in depth over and over again hearing who Jesus is and what he came uh, to do and him presenting himself to the people. And now as we go in to these later chapters, specifically here, chapter 14 to 17, I almost feel like we're, we're diving into some really deep and significant truths. And uh, it, it's, it's so, some of these things that, that Jesus teaches us are so profound and, and deep that uh, in a lot of ways I feel very inadequate in taking you into that depth and doing it in such a way that it benefits you. And so if it feels like we're somewhat um, skimming over certain uh, a larger section of it, uh, it's, it's not because, it, it, it's only because it's so deep that I don't want to miss what's on the surface for us, okay? Sometimes you can go so particular that you lose your way in all of the details, and, and it's beneficial sometimes to take a, a broader look at it in order to understand the context. And so, and so with that, uh, we're going to pick up in John chapter 13, verse 36. Um, hear the word of, of God to us, beloved. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is a really remarkable passage uh, that we've been going through, and we actually looked at uh, verses 13, 36 through chapter 14, verse 7 last time. And so you'll remember that Jesus' aim in this point of this gospel was to strengthen the faith of his disciples. He wanted to prepare them for his coming departure. He had told them and described to them in detail what was about to come. He told them, for example, and, and you can even read this in other parts of the gospel prior to this, he said, I will be arrested by the chief priests and those who are in charge in Israel. He told them, I am going to be beaten, I'm going to be spit upon, I'm going to be abused, and he told them that he is ultimately going to be lifted up on a cross to die and he is going to be crucified. And he told them, in the other Gospels even, that the whole temple system would be completely destroyed. He told them not one stone would be left on another when it comes to this Jewish religious system. He said divine judgment is going to come on Israel and on Judaism. But he also told them, and this is the most glorious truth of all, is he said, I'm going to die. All of these things will come to an end, but I'm going to rise again from the dead after three days. I'm going to rise victoriously. And so here in John, he is reminding them in this section of Scripture that his betrayal and his crucifixion, and it's a reminder for us, beloved, was not a mistake. It wasn't because he was too weak to overcome it. It wasn't because Jesus couldn't quite figure out how to make his way in the world and the world overcame him and, and took him down and he was put to death. No, when Jesus came into the world... He came for this very specific purpose, which was to willingly lay down his life as a ransom so that whoever would believe on him might not perish but have everlasting life. That your sin and my sin might be forgiven through his sacrifice on the cross. This is why Jesus came. The world's going to tell you about a Jesus that came to make your life here 
happy and healthy. They're going to tell you that Jesus can give you all of your dreams in this world, that he came to build your bank account, that he came to give you your new car, that he came to give you a great spouse, that he came to give you a good job and to make your life as comfortable here as possible. This is the only kind of Jesus that the world actually wants, but the Jesus that we see in the scripture is a Jesus that came to give his life and lay down his life, him who knew no sin, to give it as a ransom for sinners. This was God's will for Jesus. And if Jesus is going to redeem sinners, if he is going to fulfill God's redemptive plan, he is going to, in love, lay down his life to conquer sin, to conquer death, to conquer the grave, and to raise again to the right hand of the Father. That's the Jesus that you are saved by placing your faith in, the Jesus who did that. If your faith is in any other Jesus, if your faith is in anything else, then there is no hope of salvation for you. And so the disciples don't quite get it. It's not really settling in on them yet. Maybe some, some of you here, it's not quite settled in yet what the gospel is. And maybe you're, you're, you're curious or you're wondering what exactly is this message. And so Jesus knows that, and he knows that for his own disciples who he's with right now. They know he's leaving, but they are having a hard time processing it. And this anxiety of the disciples with his departure, it, it comes out in the conversation that we just read up through verse 21. Judas, who would betray Jesus, leaves, and Jesus talks to them about loving one another. And you'll notice, however, that Peter and the others, that happens in chapter 13, verse 31 to 35, and then Peter and the others are so nervous about Jesus' departure, they're wondering, how can it be that you who have loved us and who said he's coming to save us and to redeem us, you're supposed to be the Messiah, you're supposed to put all things right, how is it that you can do that when you are taken from us and you leave us and you're dying on a cross? How can this be? It doesn't make any sense to them at this point. And so they're so overwhelmed by this fact that Jesus is teaching on loving one another. Peter and the others almost skip right over it. He taught them to love one another in the passage before, and they skip right over it, and they start focusing on this departure of Jesus. Things seemed to them to be going so well a few days earlier, didn't it? Jesus rode into Jerusalem, triumphantly entering into Jerusalem, the people praising him, the people laying down their coats before him and, and waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and everything was being elevated and elevated. And, and they're thinking, here comes the kingdom. And now Jesus is saying, Look, it's all got to crumble down first. And I've got to be put to death before this actually happens. And 
their world is being turned upside down. And so Jesus sees them, and he says to them, let me encourage you. And so what we saw in verses 1 to 8, we saw Jesus give them the remedy for keeping them from being overwhelmed and vanquished by his departure. And what he points them to as the remedy, and it's what we need to remember as well, is that the remedy for not feeling overcome and vanquished by the world and the trials of the world is to see that faith in Jesus is sufficiently strong for maintaining your hope. This is what he first told them. This, I'm just reviewing what we did last week. In other words, Jesus Christ held himself out to them as the object of their faith. This is extremely important in our day and age because what you will find in our world is people will talk about faith and people will talk about being spiritual but, and, and they'll think that they're saved by it. If you evangelize people on the street and you want to share the truth with them, they'll say, well, I'm a very religious person. Have you heard that one? Yes, I have faith. I'm religious. I'm spiritual, they'll say. Spirituality, just to break the news to you, and religiosity is common to all mankind. There is not one person in the world that is not spiritual. There is not one person in the world that does not have faith of some kind. It goes with being made in the image of God. The real question is, who is the object of your faith? In whom are you trusting? In whom are you leaning for your salvation? When you die, who is it that you are looking to to bring you out of the grave? This is the object of your faith. And Jesus says, I am to be the object of of your faith, not your good works, his good works, not your religiosity, not your spirituality, not your desire, but Jesus and his person and his work is to be the object of your faith. This is what Jesus holds himself out to them. He says, I am Emmanuel, I am God with you. So important because during temptations and trials, is it not true that your faith can wander? When you are going through dark times, your faith can wander because you start looking to grab onto anything to get out. And Jesus sees them struggling. He sees Peter. Peter is almost has a lot of pride thinking he's going to do this, save Jesus from this. And Jesus has to correct him. And then he has to correct Thomas. And we saw all of that last week in Jesus' response to them. And so here Jesus is going to continue to encourage them. But this time it's going to be Philip's words in, chapter, in verses 8 to 21. 
where Jesus in the first two questions holds himself out as the remedy of their anxiety by being the object of their faith and hope. Here he actually focuses on the basis for that faith in Jesus. In other words, if Jesus is the object of your faith and we are trusting in Jesus for our salvation, why can we be assured that Jesus will be faithful and true to his promises? How do we know that he will be able to do what he said he's going to do? How do we know that? And so he gives them three reasons here. This is obviously not an exhaustive answer, but he's trying to help them to think rightly about what is coming before them. The first thing he addresses here is his complete unity with the Father. This is in verses 8 to 11. You can know that Jesus will be true and faithful to his word because of his oneness, his unity with the Father. Then secondly, you can be sure that he is faithful to his word and his power to save because of the fruitfulness of that faith. That's verses 12 to 14. In other words, when you look at the outcome of faith in Christ, the fruitfulness of it is a demonstration of his power. And third, you can know and be sure because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that he gives to his children, verses 15 to 21, okay? Unity with the Father, fruitfulness of faith, and gift of the Spirit. So let's look at that first point. Oneness, unity with the Father. In verse 8 to 11 here, by this time, the disciples had spent three years with Jesus, right? So is there not a sense in which they know Jesus? They should know Jesus. They had spent three years with him. The problem is that they don't recognize and grasp that Jesus made himself fully known to them, and they didn't grasp the implications of that. This is why Philip says, after Jesus just explained he's the object of faith, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. So, so Philip's hearing Jesus, he's been with Jesus for three years, and this trial's coming, and Philip is hearing all of this, and, and he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. What is Philip's mistake here? What is the mistake of Philip here as he's saying this to Jesus? The mistake of Philip was that Philip was wrongly longing for a more complete revelation of God himself. Philip's mistake was that he wanted a more immediate display of God himself to rest his hope upon. Philip's mistake was that he wanted a more sure sign of God's power and glory so that he could really sense that Jesus is the one he says that he is. 
And you can hardly blame him for wanting that. For wanting a desire to see God himself. Moses wanted the experience and he desired to see God in Exodus 33, 18-20. But the most he was able to see was God's backside, right? But here the disciples were seeing in the face of Jesus the very God of gods in Jesus Christ, and they could not recognize fully what the implications of that were. And you get a sense of Jesus' sadness in his response to Philip. They should have known better by now, and so Jesus says to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You see, they had seen Jesus in the wilderness like Israel was with God, like God was with Israel. God had shown Israel all kinds of miracles, all kinds of powers, and Jesus is saying here, I've walked with you now for three years, Philip, and what is it that Jesus showed them? Jesus healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 from nothing. He healed lepers. He even rose the dead. And, and Jesus is saying, have I not been with you so long to know that all that I am saying and teaching and demonstrating before you is to show you, Philip, that all of these things that I have been doing, I have even been doing them in accordance with all the promises of God in the Old Testament. In other words, everything that you've seen, Philip, in the Old Testament were all pictures of what the Messiah would come to do. And not only am I demonstrating it by my power and the things that I'm doing, but I've even demonstrated how I am the fulfillment of all of those things. And yet you don't know me just like Israel began to lose sight of Yahweh who was among them, so these disciples and Philip are beginning to lose sight of who it is that they are laying their eyes on. And so Jesus, I think he's a little disappointed in this. How can you say, show us the Father? And it's enough for us. Now, before we jump all over Philip, because you might want to do that and be like, man, Philip, what's wrong with you? How can you miss it? How can you not see it and recognize it? I think we should have a healthy dose of humility here and really step back and evaluate our own lives and realize that we are, beloved, in danger of making the very same mistake. Like Israel, like Philip, 
I think we are in danger of taking the presence of Jesus with us for granted and for looking for something more. When our hearts should be filled with thanksgiving and praise, that we have been brought to Jesus and his promises have been given to him, uh, we are well, well too often marked with ingratitude toward God. And we find ourselves unsatisfied in him alone. This was Israel's promise, wasn't problem, wasn't it? Ingratitude. Ingratitude for him delivering them out of Egypt. Ingratitude when he delivers them through the Red Sea. Ingratitude when he feeds them manna. Ingratitude when he gives them meat from, from the skies. Ingratitude when he gives them gushing water out of the rock. Everything was ingratitude, unthankfulness, spoiledness, entitlement. Are these not things that forget marking the world, which they do in our culture, ingratitude, entitledness, uh, selfishness, self-centeredness, that marks the world, but we're in danger of it marking us as the church, and we should be ashamed of that. Because what we have received from Christ is infinitely greater than anything we could have received in the world because God has presented himself to us in the flesh. And he has come to dwell among us and to give his life that we might be saved, and God forbid that we should find satisfaction in anyone else and not realize that Jesus is enough. And this is what they're struggling with, and we struggle with it. Evaluate your heart, beloved. Are you satisfied with what Christ has revealed about himself to you in his word or are you looking for more confirmation? Do you trust Christ or are you looking to speculations and philosophies and religious rituals? Or are you even looking, and this could happen I think in our culture too, for an emotional experience as the basis of your faith? Are you looking for something other that you're saying, God, you know what? Give me something more so that I can really trust in Jesus. God, let me, you know what? I just need to see you and then I'll trust in Jesus. I need to see a miracle. I need to hear a voice from God. I need a special revelation from God. If you give me a special revelation, then I'll place my faith and trust and trust in Jesus. If that's how you're looking at Christ, you're not going to find him. You're not going to find him through some other means of getting there to him. You either come to him and to him alone, or you don't come at all. Here's the fact. I have never heard God speak to me. audibly. I have never seen an angel. I have never 
had an angelic experience. I've never had um, an audible, audible voice. I've never had God touch me on the shoulder and say, it's okay, Roman, everything's going to be okay. I've never had God come and walk into my room and sit down at my dinner table and have dinner with us visibly and audibly. I have never been into the third heavens, have you? Like Apostle Paul, have you ever been into the glory of heaven and seen God? No, I haven't. But you know what? I don't need to, and you don't need to, because what you have given to you is Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in the word. And that needs to be sufficient for us to lay our faith and our hope in not looking for things outside of Jesus Christ himself to confirm his ability to save. All that he has done has already confirmed it. And you need no more confirmation of the fact that when you look at Jesus, you see God. When you see Jesus in his word and he is revealed to you in his word, you are seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he is enough. This is why when Philip says, show us the father and it's enough. Jesus says, Philip, I'm here, and I'm enough for you to place your hope and your faith in. And the reason he is enough is because he is, in his very essence, God. He is no less God than the Father. He is no less God than the Spirit. He is God, a very God. He is Yahweh. God is one in essence, revealed in three in person, but he is one God. And so Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. He's not saying, I am the Father and the Father is me. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I am the Spirit and the Spirit is me, and I am the Father and the Father is me. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying, when you look at me, you see the Father, because you see his power, his glory, his majesty. You see all those things that belong to God. When you look at me, you see God. It should be enough, and it should be enough for us, beloved. And so... You can look and jot these down if you want, but Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Talk about those truths that what we have in Christ is all that we need. But we need to move on. And so at this point, Jesus, he highlights for them the outcome of faith in him. In other words, because he is going to the Father, because he is our mediator, you will see, he's telling them, that when I depart from you, you will see my power at work in you by the fruitfulness of the ministry that is going to take place through you. If there is something you want to look to, it's look to the miracle of salvation when God transfers someone from the kingdom of darkness 
to the kingdom of his son. That total transformation of one's life, that regeneration, that new birth that comes, that is a mark of Jesus' power to save. This, Jesus says, will testify to you who I am. How does he say that? He says that in verse 12. He goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, the first thing you have to ask yourself here is what are the works and the greater works being referenced here? And as far as the works go, I think they all include everything Jesus did and taught through his ministry that were manifestations of God the Father in him. Okay? And it, so when we're talking, when Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, he's saying, Whoever believes in me will imitate me. They will love in the way that I love. They will do works of humility in the way I did works of humility. They will be a merciful people. They will be a compassionate people. They will be a people that proclaim the gospel, that evangelize. They will be a people that do, even, even in some sense, healing was a part of that promise, but not healing by the general everyday Christian, but in Acts, what happens when they believe upon Jesus? He actually gave the apostles the ability to heal. And the apostles did heal people, and they did raise the dead, and they did cast out demons. They did all of those things, but that was given to them as confirmation of their apostolic word. But in the course of the history of the world, we who believe in Jesus imitate Jesus in the way that we live our lives. At least we should, shouldn't we? This is what Jesus is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. But then you'll notice he says, and greater works than these he will do. Well, if healing was a part of those works, what can be greater than that? What can be greater than raising the dead? What can be a greater work? So what is he talking about here when he says, and greater works than these he will do? I think the key to understanding that is what comes right after it, which is because I am going to the Father. In other words, in other words, they are greater works not because they are more miraculous than the other works that they were doing, but because they will be greater in their worldwide scope and the result of the gospel of transforming lives. Because Jesus is victorious and triumphant over the grave and exalted in heaven, at this point he wasn't yet, but because Jesus goes to the cross, he's crucified, he's victorious, he raises again, it means that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is ruling the heavens and the earth. Does that make sense? He is victorious. 
And Jesus is saying, because I am victorious, when you go out into the world now and you take my gospel and proclaim my name, it's going to be greater because the scope and the transformation that the gospel brings across the world is going to be magnified a hundredfold. You see, when Jesus was on earth, he was in a little, what, 60-mile radius. After Jesus died, what happened? It exploded across the world. Greater works than these you will, than this you will do. And of course, that is by the power of Jesus. The gospel goes to the ends of the earth because Jesus is making it happen by the Spirit. Converts are gathered in to churches from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so then he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is not a promise that if you desire anything to attach Jesus' name to it, and you're going to have it. It's not what he's saying. It's not an incantation. He's not saying, just put my name on the end of any request that you have, and you're going to have it. Give me A, B, C in Jesus' name. Wham! There it is. It's not what he's saying. What it means to pray in Jesus' name, it means to pray in accordance with his desire. And what is the desire of Jesus? The desire of Jesus is to make the name of God known and to bring people into his kingdom. When Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, he's saying, when you pray in accordance with my will and my desire, this is what I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We are to ask and desire from God that which Jesus delights in, and Jesus says, I will do it. And so the power and the fruitfulness of the gospel is a demonstration that you can trust Jesus. And that leads us to the final point. Not only can we rest in Jesus' power and unity with the Father as Emmanuel, not only can we rest in the fruitfulness and power of a gospel that is being demonstrated every day in the world to see Jesus' power, but we can also rest most importantly and primarily in the fact that he gives us the gift of the Spirit when we come to Jesus in faith. If you think that it is hard to do these things, to follow Jesus and to imitate him, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says, do not fret. Are you afraid of that commandment? close here shortly, but are you afraid of that commandment? When Jesus says, if you love me, that comment, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just stop and think about it. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I don't know about you, but in my flesh, I buckle. In my flesh, I think I'd have to admit I must not love Jesus. 
This is what he's been telling them. If you rely on your flesh, if you rely on your ability, Peter, you will fall. But here Jesus assures them, while the call is high, Jesus says to them in verse 16, don't worry. Why? He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You see, while they were walking with Jesus, I'm sure they found it very easy to obey him. Jesus says, does this, do this, they do it. Jesus says, go there, they go. Jesus is with them. They're encouraged by him, constantly comforted by him. Now when Jesus is leaving their presence, it's a little bit harder to hear his voice, right? Think about your children. My kids are getting older. They're getting ready to go into college, right? Some of you have kids already graduated. But when they're at home and you're with them, there's a sense in which you can guide them and direct them. And hopefully they're obedient children in the home, right? And you tell them what to do and they, they do it. And your presence there helps them to lead them and direct them. But when they go out and they leave out to college and the parents are no longer there, right? You're a little bit more worried about them, right? Who are they going to listen to? Who are they going to, who's going to guide them? Who's going to protect them? Who's going to lead them? Who's going who's to shepherd them around the way? And you're, you're afraid of, of the wolves and the people that are going to come around them and what might possibly happen. And, and so there's a sense here in which when Jesus is leaving, part of their fear is that they're going to be left alone. And that ability to obey Jesus, to listen to him, is, is a little bit harder now. To, to, to consider the wisdom of Jesus and so Jesus says, don't be afraid of that because I'm going to ask the Father. I love the Trinity here. You see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at work. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you, and when he says another helper, he's saying, I will give you another one who's going to carry on all that I did for you, and he will be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. paraclete. He's going to come alongside, it means. Para, alongside, kaleo, to call. He's going to call somebody alongside them, another paraclete, another helper. And this Holy Spirit is going to help you for what? For anything and everything that you need, beloved. He's going to intercede for you. He's going to be an advocate for you. He's going to give you wisdom. He's going to give you truth. He's going to give you understanding. He's going to give you the ability to obey Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to be with us. And if that's not enough, Jesus says, he's going to be in you. And for how long? For how long? Forever. awesome. This is God's deposit in you and me. If you think it's hard to obey, you know what? Jesus says, I've given you the Spirit. I've given you the Spirit so that you might 
know me and serve me and love me. And that is the gift I leave to you, beloved, so that you might know that you can trust me. The Holy Spirit in us, beloved, that was one thing that was special about our trip was when we got to go to the church in Italy on Sunday. We were in Rome, and we uh, had a church. Uh, Chris, uh, Chris's uh, friend, and uh, used to serve with him at, at the Grace Community Church, and he's a GMAI, um, did I say it right? Is a GMAI, right? A missionary in Rome, and he's going to be planting a church in northern Rome, but he's still at this little church in Italy, and and when we walked into the church, we were able to worship with them. And he translated for us and the behind us, he was, it was in Italian and he was translating into English for us. But I just, I, I don't know, I'm sure you've had this experience, but there is something about going into another country or even just meeting someone down the street. Have you ever had the sense where you're like, I think this person's a Christian? And you meet them, and you're like, something about them is standing out, and this person's a believer. And I, I really f- believe that what that is is it's the spirit in you. This is why we could go to Italy, and I could go into a church and feel like I'm home. And, and I can hear the gospel here. And I can sing with these people and I can pray with them because we share the same Savior. We worship the same God. We have the same Redeemer. We have the same deposit, which is the spirit of truth that Jesus gives to his people. That's a gift, beloved. It's a reason we can know that what Christ says he will do, he will do, and the Spirit confirms that for us. And then finally, really quick in closing here, Jesus still tells them in verse 18, because they still might be a little anxious about his leaving, but I love this, and this is the gospel comes out here to me so clearly. He says, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What's he talking about here? I think he's talking about his resurrection. He's saying, don't worry, I'm going to, even in the midst of all these things I've told you and these promises, I'm still going to come back for you. He says, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. What does that mean? He's crucified and he's buried. But you will see me. What's he talking about? He's going to raise again. Then he says, because I live, you also will live. In that day, that day when you see the risen Lord, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. In other words, of all the miracles and the things Jesus did, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the greatest miracle you could ever imagine because I'm going to depart And the world's not going to see me, but I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to show myself to you. And that's exactly what happened. And they would know then by trusting in Jesus, 
in his life, death, burial, resurrection, in his work of redemption, that they too will live. That's the truth for us, beloved. Do you trust in Jesus alone as your Savior? You're alive. And we're alive to the point where we are invited to come to the Lord's table to remember our Savior and what he has done for us. And, and so I want to remind you, as we do often here at this church, is that the Lord's table is a, it's a celebration of what Christ has done for us. It's a, it's a remembering of his broken body and his shed blood. And what that means is that this table is reserved for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. So if you are here with us and you're from another church and, and you've been uh, attending a gospel church and you believe the gospel and you're trusting in Christ alone, uh, we would invite you to, to, to join us in this celebration. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior or you're, you're not sure or maybe even you're clinging to some, some sin that you haven't, haven't brought into the open to confess before the Lord, uh, number one, if that's the case, then bring your sin before Christ and confess it before you come to take the Lord's table. In other words, don't be hanging on to your sin in secret and then come and partake of the table of the Lord. If you're, if you're hanging on to your sin and then you're just partaking of the Lord, there's going to be judgment for you, God says. But if, if we don't want to say if you're sinning, don't come to the Lord's table because that's the whole point, right? But you must confess that, repent of it, and come and recognize what Christ has done for you and repent of that sin and turn from it, and you're welcome to join us at the table. But if you don't know Jesus, the scripture is pretty clear that the one who eats and drinks of the body and the blood of Christ without discernment says that they eat and drink condemnation on themselves. And what that means is when you are taking this, not knowing what it means, and you're just eating it willy-nilly, then you are rejecting the entire work that Christ has done, and you are under God's judgment. And we don't want you to eat and drink judgment on yourself. And so we would ask you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, please don't partake of the Lord's table. This is for those who trust in Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do now. So let me ask the, the uh, deacons and the servants to come forward uh, to pass out um, the bread and the wine. We'll pray 